you're a collector of anything and everything, you have come to the right place at the right time at the exact right website for The Collector Show. My name is Harold Nickel, and I am the host of The Collector Show, where we discuss anything and everything from the world of collecting. And you won't believe some of the collections and hobbies that we discover on this program. If you've missed a show lately or you're new to the program, you can go back and hear us here on Web Talk Radio or you can go to iTunes and subscribe to the program and they don't have they don't have all of them on iTunes but they've got an awful lot of them or failing that you could go to my website which is www.thecollectorshow.com and I have many many of the shows listed there that you can download and listen to over your iPod or your other MP3 recording device an interesting program this week. We're going to introduce another new collection to the airwaves, or I guess to the computer waves. It's collecting chocolate molds, or molds that were used to make chocolate candy. The great thing about this hobby, if you actually go to make chocolate in the molds that you collect, you can eat your mistakes. And that's according to our guest coming up, Carolyn Burns, who owns a business called Cetre Chic. She is an expert on chocolate mold collecting, and she's going to talk to us about that in the interview segment. Next week on The Collector's Show, we're going to talk about glass, and we're going to actually be talking with a man who is a glass historian, primarily on glass that was made between 1880 and 1930. I don't know what's special about that glass, but we're going to find out next week on The Collector's Show. You won't want to miss that. As always on The Collector's Show, we're going to introduce a couple of news items this is from a blog from a guy in Nigeria. I don't think I can say his name. I'm going to try just for the sake of uh, giving him credit for the blog entry. Obiora Oniyasu. He is uh, an investment banker who collects annual reports, and he says they are his passion. Now, if you don't know what an annual report is, it is the report that companies, publicly traded companies, publish every year to describe their earnings. Or if they've lost money, they have to disclose that. When you're a publicly traded company, you have to disclose certain things about how you've done so that people know whether to buy your stock or not. Now, this fellow in Nigeria has, according to him, rooms full of annual reports. He has one that is as long as 428 pages and is spiral bound using a piece of metal to bind all the pages together. Now, he has some very definite opinions about what makes a good annual report versus a bad one. He advises to use color, to use compelling photography, and to tell a good story. He chides companies that go cheap on the materials used to publish their annual reports, but he's hard also on people who have nice materials but who don't tell a good story. Every business out there, particularly businesses that are large enough to be traded over the various stock exchanges around the world, should be able to tell a good story about their companies. And he also has advice for people about the not just the types of paper, but the types of printing to do, the kinds of fonts, the size of the fonts, and the things that make for a compelling, interesting annual report. I'm going to post these on the website. You'll be able to read the whole thing 
later this week at thecollectorshow.com. There's another lady in India who has collected over a thousand bells. And what's interesting about her is that not only is she a bell collector and a woman who has over a thousand different bells, she actually joined the American Society for Bell Collectors. And as the only member of that society from India, she was invited to make a presentation to the American members. And like so many of us with our hobbies and collecting, she has been all over the world collecting bells. She's been to ancient cities and even to monasteries. The bells that interest her the most are the kind from Japan, where you have to use a big hammer to ring them, and then the type of bells you may see in the movies from Nepal. Those are bells that have to be rung with a big pole, and then you actually have to stop them from ringing. It doesn't say whether she owns any bells from Nepal, but uh, with a collection of over a thousand, who knows? Now, while genealogy and gardening and building remote control airplanes or vehicles remain at the top of the list for number one hobbies here in the U.S., there are a small band of people who have invested in a hobby of their own. It's the search for the truth through the investigation of paranormal activity or just ghosts. These people collect information about ghosts. Phenomenon and Paranormal Investigators, PPI, is a team of paranormal researchers located in Bradford County that have set out on a quest to find answers in the world of phenomenon. That's what they refer to as looking for ghosts, the world of phenomenon. Utilizing equipment to detect electromagnetic fields and audio and visual recorders that can pick up activity that might not be seen by the human eye or heard by the human ear, these investigators search for evidence that will deem a sighting, debunk it, or render a building as haunted. So they collect information about hauntings. Again, the full story will be up on my website at thecollectorsshow.com. Another group of paranormal investigators that I would love to have on the program collect um, tape recordings of ghosts, and it's called Electric Voice Phenomenon, EVP. I'm not going to ruin it in case we get them on the show, but using a simple tape recorder in buildings that are known to be haunted, they can collect the voices of the dead. I'm going to try to get them on. I'm not waiting till Halloween <laughs> to get them on. I'll uh, see what I can do. Remember next week, glass collecting with a real live glass historian. That's his job. We can't wait to find out more about that. And coming up next, it's Carolyn Burns, Cetre Chic, and Chocolate Mold Collecting here on The Collector Show. It's Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nickel. One of the things that's a lot of fun on The Collector Show is to introduce new kinds of collections to the audience, and that's exactly what we're going to do this week on The Collector Show. We're going to be talking with Carolyn Burns, who is the owner of a business called Say Trey Chic, and she is also an expert on collecting chocolate molds. And Carolyn, welcome to The Collector Show. Good morning, and thank you for having me on the show today, Harold. Now, it's February, and I know that we're past Valentine's, but I really thought that in the month of February, talking about chocolate would be 
an appropriate thing, but a lot of people may not know what a chocolate mold is or what it's for or what it was for. Can you just give us a little background on that? Sure. A chocolate mold is to form liquid chocolate into what will become a solid shape, such as a heart or a rabbit or a Santa Claus. Right. So it's a, it's a candy mold is what it amounts to. Absolutely. And um, I know that uh, some of the things I really look forward to are, during the year are the things that you just mentioned. Chocolate Santa, chocolate hearts, chocolate Easter bunnies, anything made of chocolate. I, I love chocolate. How long have you been collecting these molds? And tell us a little bit about your collection. Well, uh, it's really easy for me to remember when I started my collection because it was during the very end of my uh, godson's gestation. Mm. It was actually uh, in the beginning of 1998, just shortly before Valentine's Day. Uh And I was actually going to the movies with Andrew's mother, and we ducked into an antique shop for a second. And like a fish, the bright, shiny object caught my eye, and I was soon the proud owner of a double rabbit mold. Uh It happened to be a hinged mold. I brought it home, and the next morning when I woke up, it sat there on my butcher block, and I decided, well, Easter's coming, so I think I'm going to learn to make chocolate. Uh-huh. And that started my long journey of collecting molds and my trial and error and steep learning curve of uh, becoming a chocolatier. Um, I fortunately conquered the, the chocolate-making aspects, and I'm now teaching classes in my kitchen at home. And my collection has really expanded. Uh, personally, I have approximately 750 molds. Whoa, that's a bunch. Now, let's back up just for a second because I want to talk more about the mold collection. But let's talk about making chocolate. And I'm not any great cook or anything. But what I understand when I was reading a little bit, getting ready for the show today, is that you have to temper chocolate. What does that mean? Okay, well, I was very fortunate to have been schooled as a pharmacist and had taken an awful lot of chemistry classes. Oh, excellent. So I understood a bit about crystalline structure. Chocolate's actually a very complex uh, compound, and it consists of four crystals. When it is in temper, which means that it has a nice sheen to it, and it's brittle, and it has a very good mouth feel or taste, Mm -hmm. uh, then it is in its ideal state. However, to get it into a mold, you have to heat it up or melt it, which takes it out of temper, and the crystals become unstable. Uh huh. They need to then be reseeded with stable crystals, i.e. a solid chunk of chocolate, and then you can start to manipulate it into the forms that you'd like to use it for. So, so that's what tempering is about, and it really consists of um, a very uh, attentive uh knowledge of the temperature that needs to be achieved and working quickly once the chocolate reaches that particular temperature. And when the chocolate, after it's um, formed into a, into a shape, if it turns white, is that a, a bad sign? Does that mean that the chocolate has gone bad or, or what does that mean? No, that's called a bloom. And chocolate is composed of two things predominantly that come from the cocoa pod. And that's chocolate liqueur, which is not an alcoholic substance and nor is it a liquid, but it's actually the cocoa mass. Uh And cocoa butter is the other component. Uh, Certainly some other things are added to chocolate, such as sugar and lecithin. 
But the white thing that you're seeing on the surface of the chocolate is actually the cocoa butter, which has risen to the surface. And okay. that is called, again, a bloom. The reason it happens, uh, there are two. One is that it may have been cooled too quickly by the chocolatier. Right. In which case it would be seen immediately. Another is that it could have been stored improperly by the consumer and it may have heated up above the 90 degrees and then come back down and the bloom would then appear. But you still see it in the same shape because it hadn't been touched during that time that it was above 90 degrees. Okay, so... But you can still eat it. Okay, well, good, because... Um, it's not so pretty. Yeah, but it... Uh, well, I mean, and if you know me, you know that I don't, <clears throat> I don't pass up much candy. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I've eaten plenty of it. I was just always curious about that. Okay, back to molds. You start out with a hinged mold that's in the shape of a rabbit in 1998, and you decided, well, now i got to learn how to make chocolate, and obviously you did. What happened next? Well, I started exploring what other types of molds were available, and at that time... Uh, there weren't very many places to find molds. Uh, I would go to flea markets, and that was about it. The uh, molds that I tended to like best were what are called flat or plaque molds. And right. these were used to make small, shallow, one, uh, shallow objects or to make filled chocolates, which we call in the United States bonbons. Right. Uh, the other category of molds are two-piece molds or sometimes three or four if they're very fancy. And these produce three-dimensional molds, such as the rabbits and Santas we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So I, the hinged mold is actually a permutation of a 3D mold. They took the two pieces and they welded it into a frame and they put bars around it to protect it so they could toss it into what was called a... Um, a rolling bin that was used in the manufacturing process mm-hmm. to take the uh, need to do it by hand out of the picture. Okay. So more used in a factory. And and maybe this, sorry, maybe this is a silly question, but I'm trying to picture how would you make a, a piece of chocolate candy with a hinged mold? Do you fill each side up? Tell us how that works. Well, the, it opens like a book. So that's actually another name for a hinged mold is a book mold. Oh, cool. So you would open it, you can close it with clamps it, that are built onto the frame of the, of the mold, and the bottom is typically open. Sometimes it has a flap that covers over it so that the mold will have a flat, solid bottom. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it doesn't. So you would clamp the hinges shut, and then you would pour the chocolate in, make sure that all the insides are thoroughly coated, and then you would dump the chocolate out so that you would get your hollow form. Uh-huh. If there's a flap at the bottom, you'd make sure you had some chocolate smeared on the flap. You'd close the flap, and then you'd put the chocolate into the refrigerator, never the freezer, okay. but into the refrigerator to set up. Okay. Well, it sounds like fun. If, it is. Uh, it's an awful lot of fun, and plus you get to eat your mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that, I like it even better. Now, um... You said you had over 700 molds and that there were different kinds. How did you get from from one to over 700 in, in, uh, in the last 12 years? Well, actually, um, it's actually been since 1988, so I've been at this over 20 years. Oh, I'm and sorry. I, I thought you said 98. Never mind. Over 20 years. 
in any event, it will, for the first 10 years, it was rather challenging. And that's why I correct you, because at that time, I had to go to flea markets and find antique dealers who, who had them, because there were really only two or three major dealers who I came to know in later years in the United States. But people would pick them up at estate sales or at bakeries or candy shops going out of business, and then they would sell them at these flea markets. By the mid-'90s, eBay came to fruition. In sure. 1998, it was incorporated. And at that time, it, a lot of molds were flushed out of people's basements, closets, attics, and collections. And that made molds much more accessible. Through that, I was able to ascertain uh, who the dealers were, who the most prominent sellers were, and make contact with them. They were predominantly in Europe. Mm-hmm. And since I love to travel to Europe, I was able to make a business out of it. I created a website in 1999, the year after eBay was incorporated. And it remains to this day the largest website for selling chocolate molds. And I made trips four to five, sometimes six times a year to have rendezvous with dealers I had communicated with by email or by phone, and they would have chosen large lots or collections of molds for me to buy. And so that's how my collection grew, and as well my retail inventory. Now, do you keep your personal molds separate from the retail business, or is your collection for sale, or a little bit of both? That's, a, that's always a touchy subject, Carol. <laughs> I do display them in a beautiful case in my newly renovated kitchen. Um, it's a large kitchen so that I can teach chocolate classes. And I have all of my molds uh, that, can, that are two-dimensional in there. And, of course, these are always the ones that people seem to want. But I do have the retail molds separately um, inventoried by category, animals, people, fish, Christmas, that type of thing. And, you know, that so, makes a lot of sense because, um, I mean, unless somebody just offered you some incredible amount of money, I, I don't know why any of us would want to part with our personal things that we that we had collected. We do tend to get attached to these things. Oh, gosh, yeah. Gosh, yeah. I mean, I, I have things, you know, and I'm, when you and I talked the other day, we talked about my Christmas ornament collection. and. There is nothing that would, unless it was just that or starve, that would cause me to want to sell those. So, no, I completely understand where you're coming from with uh, not wanting to get rid of your of your personal stuff. Now, you mentioned going to Europe on, on buying trips, which sounds like a lot of fun. But you didn't start out. You started out in, in the flea markets. How would anybody recognize a chocolate mold if they weren't familiar with them? Well, the challenge is distinguishing predominantly a chocolate mold from an ice cream mold. Okay. Other than that, it's it's pretty uh, pretty obvious because it's a, a metal mold, and it typically has some clips or clamps on it, uh, and it it has a dis- distinctive shape of a, of a theme, be it a flower or an animal or a Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. The only difference between a chocolate mold and the ice cream mold, well, there's actually two differences. Uh, the one is that the design on the ice cream molds is predominantly on the interior, and the outside can be a pretty amorphous blob, mm-hmm. whereas the chocolate molds have the design 
on the inside and the outside. Okay. The more intricate design, of course, would be on the inside, which is the surface that would be molded from. But that's the way to tell the difference between a chocolate mold and an ice cream mold. Occasionally, one might run across something called a hard candy or a toy candy mold. Yes. These are uh, candies that are made out of sugar boiled at a very high temperature, and color is added. Uh, a lollipop is actually the most simplest of a toy candy. Mm-hmm. And these molds are made of aluminum. And again, the design is on the interior, but not the exterior. Okay. So the chocolate mold is shiny, and it has the design on both the inside and the out. Now, the age range in your collection, do you have some particularly old pieces or or... Were they uh, contemporary inventions? I'm actually very fortunate because of some of the connections that I've made. Um, I've, I got a heads up on some of the very uh, earliest molds that were ever produced. Um, they were made in the 1820s. Uh, even the source from whom I bought them, which was the Dorchy family, which has the largest collection in the world, mm-hmm. um, they reside in Brussels, Belgium, uh, are hard-pressed to put an actual manufacture to these molds. But they're made out of copper, and they were made to manufacture cracks, which are decorations to utilize on the top of a cake. And these are from the 1820s and uh, were are made out of copper, and they've actually been featured in a number of museum exhibitions. Mm-hmm. But that's really a small part of my collection. Most of my molds are from the turn of the century and up until the 70s. And since I've been polishing my chocolate making skills lately into bonbons, I've actually been acquiring some polycarbonate molds uh, for themes that I cannot find or can't afford uh, in the antique price range. So, so sorry, sorry, go ahead. 180 year span, I guess you might say. That's that's neat to hear, and they were made from copper. It's a quarter past the hour here on The Collector's Show on Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nickel. We're talking with Carolyn Burns, who is the owner of Cetre Chic and a chocolate mold collector. Let's talk about the copper molds, because the thing I wonder about, and I don't know anything about um, this kind of cuisine, do copper molds leave a, a metallic flavor in chocolate, or are they okay to use? You know, uh, it's very rare to even find a copper mold, and I personally have not actually tried to make anything out of my copper mold. Okay. So I can't answer that question. The majority of molds are made out of an iron-based metal, and then they're lined with tin, and that does not impart a flavor. Okay. Later years, they started nickel plating the molds so that they could avoid the issue of having the tin wear off. Right. But both with nickel and I, and tin plated molds, they are iron based and they do have a tendency to rust, which is why they are predominantly not manufactured any longer, and the industry has moved over to plastic. So, what do you think makes molds so collectible? I think it's the incredible variety of the themes and the intricacy and the artistic talent that is demonstrated by the the creativity in the the molds. They're very whimsical. Mm-hmm. You will have maybe a Santa riding a pig or a 
rabbit riding a dolphin or uh, uh, clowns, every type of animal you can imagine. The molds were actually used, the chocolates from the molds were actually used as a teaching tool for children. Oh, cool. And uh, so, you know, a parent would buy, go to the chocolatier and buy a few different animals, and then they would, you know, teach the children, you know, so these giraffes, these are from Africa, and different and farm animals, uh, and things along those lines. That sounds like fun and a great way to teach and um, reward Junior for recognizing his animals. He can eat, uh, like you said, eat the mistakes. They can eat the lessons. So it doesn't sound like a bad deal. Now, in terms of finding molds to start to collect, what would you recommend to our listeners if they wanted to uh, go start looking for molds and start a mold collection? I think that right now... uh what you need to do is you need to find a reliable dealer, either at some of the antique shows or an online dealer, and then establish a relationship with them. And most reputable people will take a return, especially if you buy it online and uh, you don't have the chance to hold it and touch it when you purchase it. But another good resource can be eBay, but it's very important, as with anything on eBay, to ask a lot of questions up front because oftentimes things are coming from other countries, which, of course, expands your reach to collect and find things, but it does make it more challenging to return the object if you can't find it. So what would determine... don't like it. Yeah, what would determine a, a desirable or an undesirable mold that you would recognize, say, on a, on a site like eBay? What would be a good tip? Well, it depends on what you're using it for, Harold. If you're just collecting within a certain theme, I uh, have, for example, some clients who just want Scotty dogs, so they really don't care who makes the mold, who the manufacturer is. But, for example, my French clients, they prefer to only have molds from French manufacturers, such as Letang, Metfair, or Somme. The other Europeans and a lot of Americans and Australians with whom I've done business prefer to have German molds and predominantly those made by Anton Reich. The French were the first to make the molds, but the Germans quickly outnumbered them and their skill in manufacturing uh, really produced some excellent results. And with Anton Reich at his zenith, having over 35,000 designs to choose from, it provided just an incredible selection. 35,000? very desirable. 35,000 individual designs. Yes. Wow. (laughs) pretty mind-boggling. That's quite a body of work. Now, uh, you said his name was Anton Reich. Is he still um, living, or is he deceased? Where... What became of Mr. Reich? um, I can tell you a little bit of history about Anton Reich. Their factory was actually bombed out of existence on February 13, 1945, by the Allies. It was actually the British who bombed Dresden and bombed his factory in particular. Sure. It was then under Soviet rule, and they only continued to produce a small number of molds. However, his great-granddaughter currently resides in a suburb of Vienna, Austria, and her name is Monica Tinhofer, and she has actually the only book currently in print on chocolate molds. It's written in German, 
and she features the history of the company, a lot of photographs of the employees and the manufacturing facilities, as well as photographs of the mold and some copies of some of the older catalogs. There are reproduction catalogs available, and I do have a very comprehensive one that was the largest one from one of the United States dealers. With their permission, I have reproduced it. Mm -hmm. But uh, unfortunately, Anton Reich is no longer producing molds. But the molds are quite recognizable for the most part. They are stamped with his name on one side and the model number on the other side. Uh, if the name isn't on it, it's oftentimes easy to determine if it's his mold because of the font that was used for the stamp of the number. Oh, really? Do you happen to know what the font type was? I don't know the name of it, but I recognize it by eye. Okay. It might be uh, from printing. Uh, Times Roman was a very common font used in the time period you were mentioning in the last century. It's the same as a newspaper font. Is that kind of what it looks like? similar to that, Harold. And that is actually an interesting question. I was embarking upon a book on marks. Uh, just different things to help clue people into manufacturers and manufacturers versus distributors who also mark the mold. So if you see a name on a mold, it's not necessarily who made it. It may be who distributed it, and alternately, it might be the person who owned it because some bakeries actually imprinted their name onto them so that when they loaned them to other bakeries, they would be able to not get them mixed in with their merchandise. Now, these molds from... Eastern Germany, are they expensive? I'm going to bet that they are. They do tend to be if on par with another, say, an elephant of the same size from, from France or from uh, Tilburg, Holland, JKV or Vorman was a very large manufacturing company there, or even perhaps one of the United States manufacturers, such as Eppelsheimer, the Reich mold would be more expensive. Okay. Now, in terms of amounts of money to start collecting chocolate molds, what's a good price? Well, it depends on what you're after. It, something as simple as an egg can be had for under five dollars. Oh because boy! They're incredibly common. They're just—they seem to multiply in my drawers. <laughs> uh, a simple rabbit, a sitting rabbit like we're all used to—that profile where you can bite the ears off—that uh, rabbit. Um, those molds are typically anywhere from 15 to $75 uh, for something under six inches. Uh, once you, and it all depends, of course, again on the maker, right? And the condition and the quality of the mold. And once you get bigger and larger in size and more complex in design, then your price is really going to go up. Some of the rarer, more expensive molds are intriguingly Halloween molds. Oh, no kidding. Halloween was not a, a holiday that was celebrated in Europe until quite recently. Yeah, it's funny because we've talked about Halloween on the show before, and I've actually been in Europe on uh, on business during the end of October. And every time I go during that time of the year, there's a an industry fair that I go to every October. I see more and more Halloween stuff that goes up in the in the shops and particularly in uh, western europe that uh i guess they're uh i don't know i guess it's an excuse to eat candy and dress up i i don't know what the fascination with it would be but well i think it's just a lot of fun for kids and adults to the costumes and the candy and 
you know, I think that that it's nice that we're sharing customs, but it has had the effect of really driving up the price of something that was not very uh, common to start with. The number of molds made for that holiday was very small. The range of themes was quite small. There are only about six or seven different witches, and there's several, maybe again up to ten different styles of pumpkins, and uh, there's some skeletons and things along those lines. But because they're predominantly made for the U.S. market, and a lot of them have been discarded, much like Tiffany lamps, they wouldn't be quite as expensive if people hadn't thrown them away. Right. Um, but the Halloween molds tend to be very expensive, and Christmas molds, uh, Santa Clauses, the, what we call the Coca-Cola Santa Claus. Oh, sure. The Jolly Santa Claus with the red and the uh, white and the black belt. That Santa is not nearly as common in the chocolate mold world as Father Christmas or St. Nicholas. Right. And so they're a little bit more expensive. And people are using these molds for a lot more things than just chocolate. They're making chalk figurines out of them called chalkware and right. painting them. They're making candles, paper mache figurines as well to paint, even candles. And I have one client who's a glass blower who uses the molds to form the glass into shape. Oh boy! Now that is so. That is really. That's very creative stuff to use a chocolate mold as for for glass blowing. That's uh, when I was looking online the other day. I saw some of the toy candy that you talked about, the amber sugar, but using a, a glass blowing mold for, or using a chocolate mold for glass is, uh, that's pretty creative stuff. And in, in fact, um, next week on the show, we're going to have a, a man who collects glass and is a glass historian. I'll ask him about glass and food and chocolate molds. That's uh, pretty inventive it's stuff. rather esoteric use. And in all the years that I've been dealing with folks, um, I've only ever had one gentleman who, who did that, but uh, it, it, he sent me one, and it's, it's quite lovely. Now, do you appraise collections of chocolate molds? I don't get involved with appraising. I'm really not. One usually needs to have a license in order to appraise, and any collectible is like real estate. It really depends on the current market. It's very difficult to set a value, and it's incredibly subjective. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, even my own collection is not appraised and not insured, and I don't really don't know any collectors who have gone through that process and done it because the costs have been prohibitive. Typically, if one wants something appraised, one needs to engage an auction house. Uh, or call one's insurance company and get an appraiser. So I do not get involved with that, and I actually don't know any dealers who do. Okay. Um, for the, just for the audience, you can have a rider added to your homeowner's insurance for your collections, and I think the typical rider is about $100,000, and you don't have to have an appraisal for that, regardless of what your of what your collection consists of. And there are also specific companies that will sell collection insurance and appraise your uh, collections. But I was just curious if there was a a certain knack to appraising chocolate mold collections. I, I think probably the, the references that an appraiser would use would be the, the handful of books that are available on the topic. 
Um, all of them but one is are they're currently out of print. Uh, and only two of them actually mention Price, and those are, are the most recent books, and those are by Wendy Mullins. They're fantastic books with lovely color photographs and a very wide range of molds. And her publisher encouraged her to put prices in them, but again, one has to take into consideration when the book was published and the values of you know the dollar versus the euro at that time, and the prices again, are so subjective that it's a cause of contention even between the dealers as to the accuracy of the price. Well, it would seem even in a print guide that as soon as you print the guide, it's out of date. You're very right, Harold. It's, um, but the books are helpful for um, for learning what else is out there, uh, how to, for developing a wish list of things that you'd like to have. And a couple of other key authors I would be remiss in not mentioning are Judine Devone, who wrote the first book in the United States in 1987, which provides a lot of history for the U.S. manufacturers, and actually a relative guide to the value of mold, grading them on a scale of A through D, and then assigning a number one through four next to that. And for history of chocolate molds, perhaps the best books are those by Henry Irene and Laura Dorchy. And the first one was written in French, so if you can read that language, it's very helpful. But the second book was written, published in three languages, including English, and it's called The Chocolate Mold. Mm. You can find it, buy it. It is essential for learning the history of all the manufacturers in Europe. And uh, there's a great... Um, portion of the book devoted to photographs of their extensive collection. It's half past the hour here on The Collector Show with Harold Nickel. We're talking with Carolyn Burns, who is the owner of Cetre Chic and a chocolate mold collector. Tell us how we can get in touch with you, Carolyn, if uh, people want to study about molds, buy molds. Well, I used to have a very long uh, website address, and but I've shortened it to oldmold.com. And it's O-L-D, M-O-L-D. M-O-L-D, yes. Yeah. Oldmold.com. And we can email you from there. And Absolutely. Or you can just write to sales at oldmold.com. And if we want to take your chocolate class for people who live, uh, you're in San Diego, if I'm remembering right. A little further north. Okay. But, uh, you just go to my website, click on classes, which is on the home page, and you'll get a current schedule of the classes. And I do take classes by appointment. So it's a fun activity to get three or four friends together. Um, the maximum class size is four so that you get hands-on experience. And a lot of my uh, students actually don't take the class so much to learn to do the chocolate once they go home but just to understand how it's made mm-hmm. and have the fun of that hands-on experience under the supervision. And uh, it's, it's been a really great experience for both myself and my students. It sounds like fun. I wish I lived closer to you. I'd come take your class because I love the idea of eating eating what goes wrong. I mean, I don't... I'm not... You always get goodies to take home from my class. Yeah, there's yeah. No, no downside there. Well, Carolyn Burns, the owner of Cetre Chic and Old Molds with an S dot com, contact her there. Thank you so much for being on the Collector Show this week. I enjoyed visiting with you. Harold, it's a pleasure, and I very much appreciate the invitation.
Have a pleasant afternoon. Thanks, and stay tuned for more of The Collector Show coming up next on Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nickel. That's going to wrap it up for this week's edition of The Collector Show. Remember, next week we're going to be talking with James Meisel, who is a glass historian, and he's going to talk to us not just about collecting glass, but how to make it, too. He's a historian, and I can't wait to find out the history of glass. He specializes in glass between 1880 and 1930, so you won't want to miss that. In the meanwhile, check us out on the web, thecollectorshow.com, and keep collecting. See you next week. Bye for now. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you some art. Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. If I had a million dollars, I'd be rich.